Hello and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Thank you for joining me. To recap, uh, we began uh, this series with a look at the history of pastoral care. And last time we looked at pastoral care in the Bible. We now move to what I'm calling models of pastoral care, some of the theory that gives this ministry meaning and will lead us to the more practical episode four in this series. But first, let's look again at our working definition of pastoral care. Pastoral care is the means by which the church attends to the healing, sustaining, guiding, and reconciling ministry of Jesus Christ. So, are we still happy with this definition? Well, we'll keep going. As we begin, it will seem in some ways like part two of the history of pastoral care. And so we begin with a look at the work of Seward Hiltner. Dr. Hiltner was a Presbyterian minister and taught at Princeton Theological Seminary for two decades, beginning in 1961. The timing is important since pastoral care as a discipline comes into its own in the 1960s. It's also the decade of peak enrollment in seminaries in North America and a decade of profound changes in both the church and society. So we begin with Hiltner and his foundational book, Pastoral Counseling. Published in 1949, it establishes many of the assumptions that will be carried forward as the discipline of pastoral care develops. His model, we'll call it the foundational model, has at its heart the goal to help people help themselves through the process of gaining understanding of their inner conflicts. Uh, His method, uh, as summarized by uh, Walter Kahn, uh, is as follows. First, the counseling process focuses on the parishioner's situation and feelings about it. Next, the pastor aims at understanding those feelings and communicating that understanding. Then, the pastor helps to clarify conflict in feelings. The fourth point, uh, the counseling relationship, includes special freedoms for the parishioner, for example, freedom from inappropriate moral judgment, as well as certain limitations. For example, the pastor gives help towards self-help, not answers or directions. Finally, the process should include explicit consolidation of insights and clarification gained in an attempt to enlarge the parishioner's perspective. And as Kahn notes, this method is grounded on a couple of assumptions, namely that everything we do, conscious and unconscious, has meaning, and that growth results from the constructive handling of conflict, not from its absence. That's that's a quote. In many ways, uh, this seems rather self-evident to our modern ears. Focus on the parishioner. Listen carefully. Uh, help clarify. Don't judge. Don't problem-solve. Uh, help them gain perspective based on the insights gleaned. Part of the self-evidentiary nature of this material is the extent to which these ideas were embraced and entered the mainstream. 
So this was early days in the development of pastoral care. Uh, and so next we'll move on to Howard Kleinbell. Kleinbell was a Methodist minister and professor of pastoral counseling at Claremont School of Theology in Claremont, California. During his 30 years on staff at Claremont, he wrote the landmark book, Basic Types of Pastoral Counseling, and an important revision entitled Basic Types of Pastoral Care and Counseling. The latter was uh, 1984. In the first edition, he built on the work of Hiltner and others to create what was originally called the revised model of pastoral counseling. The model was an effort to move away from an insight-driven discipline to one that was more relationship-centered. The shift was from ideas to growth, from uncovering hidden issues to embracing a person's ability to relate to others. The 1984 revision to the revised model consolidates 20 years of teaching and research to give us the liberation growth model that became his signature. Here, the key word becomes wholeness, and, and we'll let Howard Kleinbeld describe the model. He says, The overarching goal of all pastoral care counseling is to liberate and empower and nurture wholeness centered in the spirit. Further, uh, spiritual and ethical wholeness is at the heart of all human wholeness. Finally, pastoral care must be holistic, seeking to enable healing and growth in all dimensions of human wholeness. In other words, we're not simply individuals who experience varying degrees of joy and pain, but participants in a variety of relationships and institutions that have an effect on our whole selves. This model recognizes the lifelong nature of our need for wholeness that each life stage will bring unique challenges. So, a uh, question. Uh, how, how do you imagine wholeness? Is it as critical as Kleinbelt would have us believe? Um, take a moment if you wish. Kleinbelt goes further and into much greater detail, including the need to focus specifically on loss, the need to overcome a, a white middle-class bias, uh, and the need for pastoral care providers to continually grow. We'll cover some of these in other models, but we can note for now that trends in theology from the 1980s are present in his revised, revised model. Before we leave Kleinbell, we might look then at his six dimensions of wholeness, uh, because he gives us a very succinct list. They are uh, enlivening one's mind, revitalizing one's body, renewing and enriching one's intimate relationships, deepening one's relationship with nature, growth in relation to the significant institutions in one's life, and deepening and revitalizing one's relationship with God. So uh, there's a challenge here, which is uh, how, how would you order such a list? Which ones are the most important? Uh, what might you add? What might you subtract? Take a moment here, if you wish. Our next thinker, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, may well be the best known of the group in this episode. 
While she's not a theologian in the strictest sense, her work has had a profound effect on the way pastoral care providers approach the dying. She was Swiss-born and trained, and moved to the United States in 1958 and began a residency in psychiatry. In 1962, she joined the medical faculty at the University of Chicago and began to work on what would become known as the Kubler-Ross model. In 1969, she published her famous work on death and dying. In her book, she outlines the five stages of grief that many experience in the face of death. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. The five stages seem quite straightforward, uh, but it still might be worthwhile to look at, uh, for instance, um, in this case, it might be uh, simply to review the stages using the example of a bad breakup. So, denial. I'm not sure it's really over. Can it be over? We have a trip to Vegas booked. It can't be over. Uh, anger. What a jerk. Uh, bargaining. I can change. I can do better. Let me show you how I can change. Uh, depression. No one loves me. Maybe I'm unlovable. Uh, do you have any ice cream? Uh, acceptance. I guess it's really over. And through the years, people have applied or tried to apply this paradigm to any number of situations, children and divorce, substance abuse, even bankruptcy. Now, before you take a grief counselor with you uh, into the bank to talk about your visa bill, uh, we should note some of the limitations of the model, some noted by Kubler-Ross herself. The stages of grief will be affected by the network of people that surround you. The stages will not occur in the order presented, and some stages may not occur at all. And a blessed few who suffer loss will experience little or no grief, and this doesn't mean that there's necessarily something wrong with them. So, uh, a question, what, what is your experience thinking about the Kubler-Ross model? Uh, take a moment if you wish. Next, we'll look at Edwin Friedman, the author of Generation to Generation, Family Process in Church and Synagogue, uh, published in 1985. Friedman was a rabbi and a family therapist who brought family systems theory to synagogue and church. He built on the work of his mentor, Murray Bowen, and gave us a new way to understand how families and communities of faith function. The basic assumption that Bowen pioneered is that families function as systems and not simply a group of related individuals. Each member of the system takes on a role or a set of roles, and your ability to maintain your role in the system will have a direct effect on others in the system. A, a good metaphor uh, here might be a script. The little drama that is your system is guided by a script, and when one or more members of the cast stop following the script, obviously the play falls apart. So, as an example, uh, uh, let's say Bobby and Sue are set to get married. Uh, they're coming from two different families with two different ways of functioning. 
What's more, both Bobby and Sue have assigned roles in their families of origin, and this will have a direct bearing on their new relationship. In Bobby's family, his role is to be a fragile flower, the the one that everyone worries about. In Sue's family, she's the caregiver, tending to everyone and making sure that everyone is happy. So these two are married, and a, a month later, Sue gets very sick. So what happens? Well, let's add another layer to the mix and imagine that we're the pastoral care provider. In our family, uh, we, like Sue, uh, are the caregiver for the family, and so we immediately identify with poor, sick Sue. However, and this is where it gets tricky, Sue seems perfectly fine in her sick bed and is only worried for Bobby, who's a mess. Bobby can't understand how something as terrible as Sue's illness could happen to him. Uh, Our first instinct uh, is to care for the person who seems to be in the most pain, uh, that would be Bobby, until we remember that it's Sue who is sick. It was Friedman who helped identify the importance of self-differentiation for the pastoral care provider, which is really just a $5 word for recognizing that our own place in our family will have a bearing on how we function in ministry. We identify with Sue, we want to care for Bobby, and it has at least as much to do with our place in our family as it does with how we were trained to respond in a crisis. Friedman's other main contribution to the area of family systems is the idea of the non-anxious presence, the extent to which we can enter an anxious or conflicted situation and function. It means keeping focused on the overall goal or mission of the shared endeavor, uh, whether it's the unfolding life of a congregation or a family in crisis. Our final topic began as a Jungian archetype, uh, became the title of a remarkable little book, and is now a model of pastoral care, uh, namely The Wounded Healer. Henry Nouwen was a Dutch priest, a professor of pastoral theology at both Yale and Harvard, and for the last 10 years of his life, a pastor with the L'Arche community in Richmond Hill, Ontario. He wrote 39 books on spirituality, most notably his 1979 book called The Wounded Healer. In the book, he argues that everyone is fundamentally wounded, and this woundedness defines our common humanity. It is only when we understand this common experience and put it at the center of our approach to the people that we seek to serve that we can be truly effective. But rather than say more, uh, I'll let Dr. Nowen speak. Perhaps the main task of the minister is to prevent people from suffering for the wrong reasons. Many people suffer because of the false supposition on which they have based their lives. That supposition is that there should be no fear or loneliness, no confusion or doubt. These sufferings can only be dealt with creatively when they are understood as wounds integral to our human condition. Therefore, ministry is a very confronting service. It doesn't allow people to live with delusions of immortality and wholeness. 
It keeps reminding others that they are mortal and broken, but also that with the recognition of this condition, liberation starts. He continues, No minister can save anyone. He can only offer himself as a guide to fearful people. Yet paradoxically, it is precisely in this guidance that first signs of hope become visible. This is so because shared pain is no longer paralyzing, but mobilizing, when understood as a way to liberation. When we become aware that we do not have to escape our pains, but that we can mobilize them into a common search for life, those very pains are transformed from expressions of despair into signs of hope. End quote. And amen. So I'm going to stop there for now and uh, let you ponder all of this. Uh, encourage you to join me next time as we look at the pastoral visit. We've moved from uh, history to theory, and next time we'll address the practical dimensions of sitting down with someone and providing care. Thank you for joining me.